0: Folks, if you want to take your seats and open your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Next week, Peg and I will be down in New Jersey to perform. I'll be performing Sarah Kachaturian's wedding. She marries Michael Spurlock, a godly man who's serving as a pastor. Um, many of you know Sarah, dear sister who was with us for a number of years. as She went to seminary, so it'll be a joy to do that. And just to let you know, this week actually, I'm I'm taking a mini sabbatical week, and just uh, I mentioned that to ask you to pray. Uh, I'll be spending the week in part uh, studying uh, the topic of being a shepherd in Scripture. And uh, really, the word pastor means shepherd. And I believe the Lord's given me some insight, uh, I hope, as I serve as pastor. But I feel like it's something I just want to deepen in and learn about. So I have a number of resources I'll be journaling and praying. So I uh, just would ask that you, as you think about during the week, pray for me in that time. Uh, so next Sunday, you'll get to hear from our own Jeff as He brings us the next section in 1 Peter 4. I hope you've been enjoying this series. I, I, for me personally, I feel like the Lord's been teaching me a lot and speaking to me and I'm very grateful for His words. It's just so wonderful that we have this book that are the very words of the infinite, glorious God. And He is very eager, as Jeff talked about, He's, he's eager in many ways, He's eager to speak to us. He's eager to send His power as the Holy Spirit to be with us, to help us to hear Him and experience Him. So as we come before His Word, it's it's really not a lecture um, that we're participating in. I'm not giving a lecture, though there is information in what we go through. It's ultimately uh, it's communicating the very words of God. It's being used of God in the sense to be a mouthpiece. Uh, I'm just a, a little human being, a sinner saved by grace, but our God is great and He uses... And vessels to do glorious things. And so as we go before His Word, let's go before Him in prayer, uh, expecting that He will follow through on His character and promises and indeed speak to us as we look at His Word this morning. So Lord, we thank You for that. You are so gracious and condescending to us. Oh Lord, why would You care so much? But You do. You are good in Your love and humility. And each person here, you know. You know in detail beyond what they know. And you love them. And you want to speak to each one here. You want us to hear the living God speak to us. So Lord, we ask You to come in the power of Your Spirit now. Lord, that You'd use me. Uh, You would speak through me. And Lord, uh, I would fade in the background as we hear from You this morning. Lord, change our lives. Glorify Your name. Teach us of Your kingdom, we pray. And we thank You, Lord, for Your mercy and grace. We look forward to what You'll do this morning through the preaching of Your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7-11. through 11. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look there. If not, you can look up on the screen. Either way. Peter is starting to wrap up his letter here and giving some exhortations. Again, we've learned that he's speaking on the theme of living as elect exiles. How to live in the world, though we are not of the world, though we belong to God in a world that at many times is opposed to God. How then are we to live in light of these things, in light of the Gospel? So he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, For the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards Amen. First Peter 4, 7-11. through 11. Great passage. Oh, in the movie Back to the Future, Part 2. Anyone ever seen that movie? Some of us. I've seen it. The, the bully bad guy. What was his name? Biff. Biff Tannen. In Part 2, he's 78 years old. It's the year 2015, which is actually fast approaching, which is kind of wild. The year 2015, he's 78, and he gets a hold of this sports almanac that has all the statistics for sports from 1950 to the year 2000. And he gets the almanac as a 78-year-old man, gets in the DeLorean... It's an automobile that used to be around. The DeLorean time machine and travels back to 1955 and gives that almanac to himself as a younger man. To Biff the younger man. And he says, use this book to make money, to gamble and make money. And we find in the movie as things go on, they they travel back and they find that in 1985, the town Hill Valley is entirely transformed because the younger Biff did indeed take that almanac and bet on sports and became like the authority on betting on sports, made probably millions and millions of dollars and transformed Hill Valley into this grotesque and crime-ridden version of Las Vegas. Do you remember that? Remember those scenes? What would it be to, to be able to have something like that, to have a book like that, and to travel back in time and give it to somebody? What would you do? I know you would use it for all good things, right? You would, you would only do good things with such power if you had a sports almanac. But what would it be like? Well, the truth is, as believers, we actually have a book that rightly predicts The future. That rightly tells us and precisely tells us what's going to happen in the most important matters. And not only does it tell us what's going to happen in this wonderful book, but it instructs us how to live. So it's better than the sports almanac. It doesn't just say what's going to happen. It does that. But it does even more. It says this is what's going to happen and therefore do these things. Not trying to build a grotesque Las Vegas but other things it calls us to. We have this amazing book and this amazing privilege of knowing what the end of the story is like. Knowing what the end of the ultimate story called history is all about. And we can, by God's grace, live wisely according to the instructions that this book gives us for the end. And this is really what Peter's saying in this passage. Peter is calling us because we know the end of all things is near. The end when Jesus returns and finalizes everything with his everlasting kingdom. Because the end is near, we are to live specific ways, ultimately for God's glory, ultimately for our riches in him. So we actually have. One up on Biff Tannen by far. Because we are given this book that tells us what's going to happen, and then says, Live this way, and then says, If you live this way, you will find true and everlasting riches. Certainly, we know the beginning of that living is believing, trusting in Christ and His death and resurrection for us, recognizing we are helpless to live this way, and that He comes to rescue us. But then, as we come to Him, he grants us power to be able to follow through with these wonderful instructions so that we might enjoy true riches. Jesus will return soon, so we must live for the glory of God by living and loving well. That's what Peter's saying in verses 7 through 11, and we want to look at that more in depth. So let's let's do that. Let's go through this section and look at what Peter's saying and learn as we go. He starts out in verse seven. he says, "The end of all things is at hand, the end of all things." And he talks about this a lot in First Peter. He talks about the end of all things, the, the return of Christ. And he doesn't mean the demise of all things. It isn't the end in the sense that, like, everything's going to go kapui and that will be it, there's be nothing left. He doesn't mean the cessation of all things. What he really means is the conclusion, the finalization of all things. That all things will be brought to their finish and conclusion, and the ultimate purpose that God intended for the universe will be accomplished. That's what He means by the end of all things. And as we read through the letter, we see Peter talking about this, about this this return of Christ where He he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. He will judge all mankind and reward mankind. And for those who have run to Christ for forgiveness and run to Christ for, for power to live, He will bring reward, a blessing. He will bring the fullness of our salvation. So Peter, throughout this whole letter, is emphasizing that the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is near. This is the ultimate reality for us. And we are to live with this mindset. He says the end is at hand. Some have thought that Peter was just misguided. It's natural to think that in some ways, right? When did Peter write the letter? Approximately 2,000 or so years ago, right? Then does that hand Peter? Obviously not because it's been 2,000 years and we haven't seen the end yet. What do you mean? Well, I don't think Peter was a dummy. Peter didn't miss it. Peter had been around Jesus. Jesus had actually given specific instructions, specific truth about what would happen. Before the end would come. Have you read that part in in Matthew 24 and other places? He said that Jerusalem will be trampled upon by the Gentiles. He tells them specifically that. That that all this wonderful, this glorious temple, this glorious city will will be tossed down. Not one stone on top of another. And then the gospel will be preached to all nations. And then the end will come. Peter heard that. Peter knew that. So he wasn't thinking the end is at hand because when he wrote the letter, Jerusalem had not yet been trampled upon and the Gospel had not yet gone to all nations. So I don't think he meant at hand in that sense. But something had happened that Peter had witnessed and changed his opinion about the end of all things. There was something that had happened that made Peter able to conclude that the end was at hand. He had seen something happen that initiated the end of all things. He had seen an unbelievable universe-shaking occurrence take place. He had seen Christ die for sin and be raised from the dead. He had seen Christ raised from the dead, Christ as fully man and fully God, be raised from the dead. He saw Him overcome sin and death as the fulfillment of all of God's promises and the fulfillment of God's promises to, to make a new heaven and a new earth, and grant eternal life to His people. He had seen the prototype, the ultimate prototype of God's version for humanity, the the new version for humanity, His recreated humanity. He had seen the prototype. And He had seen this prototype ascend to heaven and take rulership. And because of that, He knew that if the prototype had already occurred, if the ultimate prototype Christ had been raised from the dead and now was reigning, it was only a matter of time before all the other versions followed the prototype. And the end came. That is why I believe Peter could say the end is at hand, because he had seen the beginning of the end in Christ's resurrection. So he rightly concluded, and we are too as well, to say that the end is at hand. We live in the end times now. The end times are not merely future, they're now. They start from Christ's resurrection and they finish at Christ's return. We live in the end times. So Peter is speaking to us. The end is at hand. We live in the end times. It's so helpful to know the end when you're in the middle. To know that the ultimate conclusion, the end, the fullness of the end is at hand. The ultimate conclusion is coming. It is so helpful. And I think in life we, we, we appreciate this truth because we. I know I at least operate this way. When I read a book, I don't like reading a book where I don't have a sense for what the ending is. But I love books where you know the ending is going to turn out a certain way, particularly if you know it's going to be a happily ever after type book. And excuse me if I learn lose man points for this, guys, but uh, one one series of books I really enjoy are Jane Austen books. Yeah. I like Jane Austen books because you know how they're going to end, right? They always end in a, a, a wedding, I think, right? Maybe there's some exception. They always end in a wedding. And part of what's enjoyable about Jane Austen is is your you read through the book or you watch the movie? I've, well, actually, I've never read the books. I've just watched the movies. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can enjoy the book, but the movie. Uh, I really enjoy the movie. And part of the joy of the movie is that there's all this tension, right? They're, it always happens the same way. The, this this beautiful, uh, gifted young lady, often kind of a character of sorts, you know, and ha- and has her flaws, whatever. She's introduced and then there's some dopey man who comes in and uh, and he's he's charming but there's some fault in him, right? And the and usually the woman is has some fault, but they're not as serious as the guy. The guy's tell it's a woman's book. The guy's usually the, the, <laughs> the, the dopier guys. And then what happens throughout the story is that the guy something happens, right? And there's all this tension and and they think something about the relationship but it's not true and then it you know, it looks like nothing's gonna happen. Then the guy finally gets the clue and he, he changes and and comes to the woman and, and, you know, proposes or whatever. And it's always, you know, so emotional and wonderful. And we, we you know, we maybe we cry even. I've, I've cried. I've shed a little bit of tears at times when that happens. But, um, but we know it's going to happen. But part of what makes it joyful to go through it is, is we know there's a conclusion. So we can bear the tension with anticipation. That's what life is like. We know the end. And there's tension here now. There's struggle here now. We're often like the dopey guy who doesn't get it. But there's a conclusion coming. And so we can live now here with that in mind. And it helps oh so much. And as believers, we cannot expect to have the strength to endure if we don't keep the end in view. So Peter, in his care for the people, wants them to remember The end of all things is at hand, and then he calls us to live specific ways. You would think, in some ways, last week I talked about. I asked the question: If we had two months to live, what would we do? And and you would think that you know, with that mindset, that maybe we should do something incredibly heroic. Maybe last week you were thinking about this: If I had two months to live, maybe what I need to do is climb the Empire State Building, put on one of those rainbow wigs. Get a John 3.16 sign and a parachute and jump. Right? If i got two months to live, that's what I should do. Something crazy and heroic. Or maybe I, I need to sell all my possessions. Sell my house, my car, uh, and sell everything. Have nothing and just wear a potato sack and sandals and walk around the streets of Haverhill calling people to repent and believe the good news. Right? If you got two months, but peter does Peter ask us to do that? Get the rainbow wig folks. Empire State Building. Get the potato sack. Sandals. No. With the end in view, Peter does call us to heroic acts, but they're not the ones we might think of. And what he does in the next section, in the middle, is he calls us to these simple, God-centered acts of love. Simple, God-centered acts of love. His heroic deeds are not what we might think they should be. Heroic deeds for the Lord are simple, God-centered acts of love toward one another. So let's take some time to look through these simple, God-centered acts of love. Peter calls us at the beginning to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. He, he hits on this earlier in First Peter 1. I think we have some of these verses. First uh, 1 Peter 1.13 Brendan, to put up. He calls us earlier in First Peter to be preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. The same sort of words. So set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Peter calls us in this letter, and God calls us really throughout Scripture, to watch our mindsets. To think carefully and soberly. Live a self-controlled Life And in particular, in the realm of the mind. He wants us to think clearly. And, and taking the context of the letter, this, it, it really gives us the sort of things He wants us to think about. So when Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded, he's not just saying do that and figure out how to do it. No, he's given us the sort of things in this letter to think about. And really, what has he been talking about in the letter? He's been talking about the good news of Christ and all its implications. Christ's righteous life, His death for sin, His resurrection from the dead, His reign and His return. That's the the Gospel, the story, the true story of who Christ is and what He has done and what He is doing. And so He wants our minds to be wrapped around that truth. When Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded, he's saying, think Gospel thoughts. And elsewhere in Scripture, it calls us to the same thing. It is so important for us to get that point. We must never assume that our minds can be passive. That we can kind of just let our minds go and they'll be okay. God has given us our minds and they're a gift from God. But they're active. Our minds are like a richly fertilized garden. Like a richly fertilized garden ready for things to grow in it. And if we are not careful with what we plant in the garden, we will find stuff growing in the garden that's not helpful. There's no neutral ground. There's this rich, fertile garden that is our mind. And stuff will grow there. And we must never think that we can be passive and just kind of let stuff grow. Oh, whatever. No, Peter's saying be self-controlled and sober-minded. Watch what you plant in the garden. Watch what you cultivate in the garden. Get good Gospel truth to fill your mind and to grow in that garden and produce good fruit. What we think has oh so much to do with who we are and how we live. So Peter starts off this section saying, think wisely. Think gospel-centered truth. Let the truth of the gospel inform everything we think about. Let it flavor and change everything. Let it cultivate our minds. We are to sow good crops in our minds. And, and if you have weeds in your mind, I do too. There are things in my mind that I, that I don't want there. Sometimes there's things in my mind I do want there, and they're not good. And God's program is not, not as much to pull up the weeds, though we already do this as we're able, but to sow the seed. And the, the wonderful thing about the Gospel, is a little different than how a real garden works, is the Gospel seed starts to displace the weeds as it grows. It starts to push out the weeds. And there's no room for the weeds to grow. The Gospel truth and all the, all the things that come with that start to fill our minds and fill that garden. And that's what God wants for us. That's how we are to live in light of the truth that the end of all things is at hand. And Peter goes on he says, for the sake of your prayers, be self-controlled and sober-minded. He wants us to be able to pray well, He wants us to have the right mindset. He wants us to have godly, Gospel-centered thoughts so that we can pray effectively. Because if you live in the end times, which we do, we need the power of prayer. We need to pray. Jesus had, had spoken so much on prayer. He, he told His disciples to watch and pray lest they fall into temptation. He spoke about prayerfully enduring trials Being ready for the bridegroom's return. We need prayer. Prayer is our most, probably one of our most powerful weapons to to succeed living in these end times. And He wants us to pray regularly and effectively. If you're a fan of military history, uh, you know the importance of artillery and air support. That if you want to win a battle, you can send your guys in, you can send your infantry in, and and have them fight out the battle, but their likelihood of success is dramatically decreased if there's no artillery cover, if there's no artillery ahead of the the troops, if there's no air support. Well, prayer is our artillery. It's our air support in the battle in these end times. And if we're not calling in air support and then going into battle, we're going to find it tough. But God gives us this wonderful gift, this wonderful part of our Weapon of warfare 6. That is prayer. And He wants us to use it because it's powerful. And it softens the ground and it changes lives. And it makes things happen. It brings the Kingdom as we ask for His Kingdom to come. So Peter calls us to a thoughtful, Gospel-centered mindset for the sake of prayer. He goes on here calling us to other things. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. These things flow from one to another. The right mindset, a prayerful life, flows into a life of love for one another. A life of love and forgiveness. Peter says, above all, he calls us to the priority of loving one another. Love really is the greatest Christian characteristic. If you want to know if somebody's mature in Christ, how you measure that is not by what they know, though knowing truth is very important. Peter just talked about the mind. But that's not how you determine if someone's mature. You don't determine if they're mature by the position they hold. The real indicator of someone's Christ-likeness, their maturity, their grasp of the Gospel, is their love for one another. That link is so strong in Scripture. It's the true measure of our maturity. The indicator of our vitality. The most important part of our spirituality is our love. It's at the core of our call. 1 Corinthians 13 calls us to this above all things like Peter does. He says at the end in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. We are to love one another above all. And he's talked about in this letter earlier on. We heard about this how the root of this love comes from God. It is a supernatural act. There's a, there's a grace of God that we have as human beings in loving one another and loving our children. That's a that's a gift. But to, to continue in love and love of the sort that God calls us to is supernatural. He calls us to love those that are unlovely. He calls us to love those that are not like us. To, to love those that we wouldn't naturally love. And we are to love those earnestly. And we are a church that is full of diverse folks and who I believe love each other. And without Christ, we wouldn't necessarily be hanging together. But because of the love of Christ that's here, there's love for one another. It's a gift that comes from Him. It comes from a a new life. It comes from the seed of the Gospel coming and being planted in our souls, producing new life. So the core of our ability to love one another is a supernatural act of God in us. As we embrace the truth of the Gospel, that Christ died for us, for our sins, and rose for our justification, as we embrace these things, we experience new life and new love. And it's interesting, so Peter calls us to this, above all, love one another earnestly. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, okay, love each other, now let's go on to another topic. There's a danger sometimes when we, when we boil down the commands of God, the, the, the ways of God, the call of God to a simple sentence, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's a danger for us, I believe. We can make it into this nebulous concept. It can lose its reality. We can think that this love is just some sort of thing that's out there, and to love God and to love one another, just kind of do that. maybe it's a feeling. Maybe it's this, this kind of foggy Holy Spirit mist that kind of just dwells here amongst us, we, as we love each other. But that's not what he says. Peter puts hands and feet on love right in this sentence. He calls us to love one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Love is immensely real and practical. And Peter points to how it works in the believer the ability to overlook sins. Sins. He's quoting probably Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. I think we have that verse to put up, Brendan. Where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred looks to create strife and division by highlighting offenses. Hatred wants to highlight offenses. Wants to bring those offenses out and create strife. Love wants to cover offenses. Love is known by its desire to overlook offenses, to forgive and to move on. Peter's not saying that love is naive and ignorance, that just ignores things. No. He's speaking about the heart motivation of one who has love. A heart motivation to overlook, to forgive, and to move on. Not to dwell on someone's offense. So we need to ask ourselves, do we enjoy mulling over someone else's sin? Do we enjoy just thinking about their offense? What they did to me? What that's cost me? How that's hurt me? Now I'm not saying we shouldn't address those realities. But are we enjoying that? Love has the opposite Sentiment. Love wants to forgive and move on to seek their good. If we continue in hatred, it will color our worlds, And we will stir up strife. We will live in such a way that everything that person does will perhaps be interpreted negatively and it will start thinking about that person in this light of hatred, stirring up strife, thinking about all the things that they have done that are wrong. But love doesn't do that. Love colors our world differently. Yeah, if someone could shut that door, please. Love color- colors our world differently. Love makes it so in our hearts that we are looking to forgive. We're looking to forget. We're looking to move on. And when we need to deal with sins, we do that not with creating strife, but with creating restoration and reconciliation and redemption. Peter is calling us in these end times, the end time, uh, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, love one another earnestly. For love covers over a multitude of sins. He wants us to live for the end by loving in such a way that we are eager to overlook sin and to forgive and to bless one another. That, that love and unity might be preserved among God's people. Do you, really, do you want to know if you really love God? A true measure? We may say at times, yes, I love God. The Bible's, an, the Bible's answer to that question is another question. Do you love people? And then Peter's answer here beyond that is if you want to know if you love people, do you overlook the sins of those around you. That's a measure of love for people. Do you overlook their sins? Are you quick to forgive and move on? When you have to address the sin, because wisdom calls you to that, do you do so with a desire to move towards reconciliation and restoration and move on? So we need to ask ourselves, do I do that? Do I overlook my spouse's sin? Do I overlook my sister or brother's sins? Do I overlook my church's sins? Do I overlook my bosses, my co-workers, my neighbor's sins? That's what we're called to in these end times because of the love of God that is in our hearts. Peter continues, Giving us more specifics. He calls us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, an expression of love. A heroic deed that He calls us to in these end times is to be hospitable. He wants us to be hospitable. He wants us to open up our lives and share our lives with others. Invite others into our lives and to use the resources that we have such as home and family. What a blessing family is and home is. You don't have to have children. You don't even have to be married to, have to be hospitable. God has blessed you with resources. He's blessed everyone here, as far as I know, with a place to live. He's given us rich blessings. He wants us to be so full of His love and His ways and so eager to live wisely in these last days that we are aggressive in practicing hospitality. Without grumbling. That we love to invite people into our homes. And share our resources and so bless them that they feel welcome and comfortable and create, we create a context through that where there can be love and truth. Where there can be these Gospel-centered relationships that thrive and grow in hospitality. Peter's calling us to hospitality. Isn't that interesting? Again, you think some heroic deed we're supposed to do. Given the end, the end of all things is at hand, go do some heroic deed. Here's God's heroic deed. Invite some people over your house. Welcome them in. Give them some warm coffee, a piece of pie, a listening ear. Create a context where there can be wonderful fellowship. If they don't know the Lord, create a context where they can see the love of God. That is a heroic deed. That is how to live for the end times. Be hospitable. Be eager. Be active in that. It is a heroic deed in God's eyes. And I, as I prepared this, just was thinking about this church and how you guys excel at this. You guys excel at hospitality. Um, I know there's more for us to grow in this for sure, but, but you guys do really excel. And I want to excel at this. I want to celebrate that. I see it in many contexts. I see it on Sundays. I really believe uh, you guys excel at this through what you do on Sundays, as guests come in. I see you folks, folks that are members, regular tenders here, really doing an excellent job of welcoming guests. And it, and it takes skill and real concern for others to do it well. Because when a guest comes into your home, you could just be like go up and give them a big old hug and just you know talk and talk and talk. Oh, come in here and just keep on stuffing food in their face and overwhelm them. They wouldn't feel very welcome if that were the case, right? You can do that in a church, too. Welcome to, welcome to King Research. It's great to have you. How can I help you? And just kind of follow the person around the room. That's not really welcoming. You guys don't do that. But you do make people feel welcome. You do let them know through your words your respect and care for them and your desire to, to put them at ease. You guys do a great job of that. This tension of not overwhelming, but welcoming. But also providing room for someone to come here. It's important for us in making people feel welcome here to provide room for folks just to check us out. Because it can be intimidating coming to a large group of people that you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. What are they going to sing about? What's a guy going to talk about? This could be really weird. And you guys do such a wonderful job at hospitality on Sundays. Uh, Just the other week, too, I just wanted to mention it. Uh, We had the memorial service for John. And your hospitality was outstanding. I am so grateful for that because that was God's blessing for a key moment for so many people. We had John and Julianne's extended family here. Many of them had, had um, not been in a church. Maybe not heard the truth of, of God's son, his death and resurrection. Had not met people who profess faith in Christ. And you guys did an outstanding job. And I know you didn't do it to perform. That wasn't the heart. The heart was just to love on folks. And, and I talked to many people who came here and just were, were very affected by that. Very affected by your your love, your care, uh, the, the comfort. And then the Lord here, was here with us as we met. And then the food downstairs was fabulous. Uh, we, we may be only a church of about 100 or so, but you guys cooked like a church of 300 plus. It really was incredible. The food was, was wonderful and there was so much of it. And that was part... Of hospitality. Lives were affected that day. And I trust for eternity. And in many ways, the context and the ability to affect their lives came directly through your hospitality. So thank you. Thank you for your heroic deeds of hospitality. Peter goes on and he calls us to Use our gifts. He makes some general exhortations on using our gifts. He says, As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. He teaches us that each one has received the gift. Each one. Every believer in Christ has gifts. Each one has received a gift. We have been given this gift to serve one another to bless one another, to build up one another, to see God glorified through the use of these gifts. Each one has received a gift. And we are called to be good stewards. A steward is someone who's responsible for someone else's stuff. Someone who's been given a responsibility. They've been given a privilege. They've been endowed somehow. And their job is to, to steward, to take care of that gift. To, to make that gift flourish and, and provide a return on that gift. God has called us to steward our gifts. It makes me think of a, a story I heard about a couple some years ago. I can't remember who it was. A seminary couple. They were at Gordon-Conwell. And they were given a free rent on this fabulous estate on the North Shore. They could live on this estate and actually they, they were given the carriage house, which was like a house, on this beautiful estate. Got to enjoy all the privileges of the estate And all they had to do, if I remember right, the guy's job was to check the windows in the greenhouse each day just to make sure they were open the right amount as the seasons changed. That's all he had to do. And he got this beautiful house and and this beautiful mansion complex to, to live on. I think that's a picture of our gifts. God invites us in to live on this state. He lives in the mansion. He calls us to fellowship with Him. And He gives us a gift. And it's really pretty simple to use our gifts in some ways. We get to live on this incredible estate all by grace. Then He says, Here, here's something. I just want you to take care of this thing. I just want you to invite people over your house. I just want you to be one who calls and prays for people that are hurting. I just want you to be one who teaches my word." I want you to serve in this way as I give you this gift. That's what God does in our lives. It's wonderful to live with Him. And He gives us this stewardship He calls us to. It isn't hard. It's a blessing. If the band could come up as we close. Peter finishes up this section with what's called a doxology. And that just means uh, a word of praise. It's a Latin word from a Greek word meaning a word of praise. He says at the end, he speaks of all these things. He speaks of the end being at hand. The end of all things being at hand. Therefore, live these ways. And then he says, in order that in everything, in verse 11, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. He finishes this section with this really this grand crescendo of praise to God. But it falls on the heels of instructions about really mundane day-to-day things. That's how God thinks. That's what God is interested in. When God thinks of displaying His glory in Christ, He thinks of day-to-day mundane things, that we may call them that, like what's described here. He thinks of a people who love one another, who are are filling their minds with truth, who are forgiving one another, who are being hospitable to one another, who are using their gifts in these ways. Those are the heroic deeds of God. And God's infinite glory, greater than anything we can imagine, beyond comprehension, is communicated through these simple acts of love. Think about that. We think about God being so glorious and so infinitely glorious. And He says, yes, I am. I want you to enjoy My glory and I want you to participate in My glory by doing the dishes. By inviting friends over. By forgiving those who wrong you. And it is in these things My infinite glory is displayed. And the result is, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. These things, in order that in everything, God might be glorified. He is worthy. He invites us in these end times to live for His glory through these simple acts of God-centered love. Let's pray. Lord, we need to understand these things, Lord. Even having gone through it now, I, I just recognize there's so much more I need to get. Lord, we want to be a people who do heroic deeds as we look to the end. And would you lead us in this? Would you give us wisdom, Lord, how to live this way, how to fill our minds with gospel truth, to pray, to love and forgive, to practice hospitality, to be faithful stewards? of our gifts that You might be glorified in all this we pray in Christ's name.